0: We'll begin reading in verse 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, let's hear the Lord's word. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Say not thou... What is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense, but the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider, God also hath set the one over against the other, to the end that man should find nothing after him. Amen. The Lord bless the reading of his word. For his own name's sake, bow your head with me for a moment, please, in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. And Father in heaven, it is in the name that's above every name that we ask thee to draw near, to open the mouth and the heart of thy servant, to preach the word of the Lord in the power of the Spirit, to open the ears and understanding of these thy people, they might know tonight that God had a word just for them. We we need, Lord, to draw near to Thee, and we cannot do that of ourselves, but we say with the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon, in that first chapter, draw us, and we shall run after Thee. Do that, we pray. All for Thy glory, we ask it. Amen. 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 1859, that is a very notable year in the land of Northern Ireland. In the spring of that year, there was a heaven-sent revival that began to sweep through that small province. And it was a welcome sight to many of God's people. Prior to the move of the Holy Spirit, one minister described in his diary, he had been keeping the spiritual climate of that day, in these words, The cause of evangelical religion stood very low in Ulster. A general indifference and deadness reigned throughout the Protestant churches. That's a big statement. Northern Ireland, strong Protestant churches, 1859, and yet there was reigning throughout those, reigning indifference and deadness. Another minister described his congregation before the revival in these words, the people were not immoral, nor without a religious profession, but Laodiceanism characterized them. Laodiceanism. From my first entrance on the work of the ministry, I believed that the faithful use of the means of grace should be followed by their appropriate effects, as certainly as the tillage of a field is followed by a crop, or as diligence in any profession is rewarded with success. And bitter, therefore, was my disappointment as year after year passed and still No fruit appeared. What alarmed me most was the disinclination, almost hostility, of the people to hold prayer meetings. They appeared, for the most part, as if they thought they were well enough and that I was unnecessarily disturbing them and drawing them off from their necessary industrial pursuits, so that I was led at times to think and to say that they had a greater desire to win half a crown than for all that God could do for their souls. All of that changed, of course, when, when God came down. That same minister was able to write after that revival, Some, whom I had never seen at a prayer meeting and who would have said that they had not time to attend for a couple of hours once a month, have, since the revival commenced, attended often twice daily, in some instances with three or four sons during the best working hours of the summer day. It's also interesting to note that in the spring, Of that same year, 1859, the first installment of a new novel was published in England. Its opening paragraph begins with these words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. You may recognize the opening lines of Charles Dickens' famous work, The Tale of Two Cities. At times, he was referring to were not the, the mid-1800s in Northern Ireland, but the late 1700s in Paris and London, particularly those times as they relate to the French Revolution. But it's not so much the, the history of Dickens' novel that interests me. It's what he says in that opening line. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of of despair that line is all about the paradoxes that are part of the life of every one of us it's about that paradox that underscores the tension that exists in life's experiences at any any given moment of time people are living in the midst of what they would describe as good times while others are living in what they would not hesitate to say are bad times. While the Lord was moving in a sweeping revival in Ulster in 1859, Charles Darwin published The Origin of the Species. Spain declared war on Morocco. Morocco. A British passenger ship, the Royal Charter, was smashed to pieces off the rocks of Wales. 450 people died, the largest death that had ever been through shipwreck. It was the best of times as far as God reviving his church in the United Kingdom. It was the worst of times as Darwin's heresies and death that marked that famous year. But as the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes says back in chapter 1, there is no new thing under the sun. This this tension, this, this, this paradox is not something confined to the 19th century. Solomon speaks about this very thing in my text tonight found in verse 14. In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider... God also has set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. From that text, I want to speak for a little bit this evening on dealing with good days and bad days. Dealing with good days and bad days. My first thought is this. In God's sovereign plan, Our lives are made up of good days and bad days. doesn't matter who it is. Our lives are made up of good days and bad days. The good days are called here in our text the days of prosperity. Bad days are called days of adversity. You notice that Solomon is speaking in a very matter-of-fact manner about these two seasons in man's life. He took it for granted. This is what he expected. This was part of the plan of God. There's going to be good days and there are going to be bad days. You can count on it. And it's his very approach to the good times and bad times shows that he didn't think it a strange thing that this is how life is. Well, you say to yourself, perhaps, well, preacher, of course, there's good days and bad days. There's good times and bad times. I get it. Do you? Do you? Do your responses to the bad times indicate that you get it? That there will be good days and bad days, good times and bad times? This side of glory. Oh, yes, when glory comes, it's all good times. It's one good eternal day, but right now, do you really get it that there are bad times and good times as part of God's plan? I asked the question only because uh, the apostle had to write, remind the church this very thing, Peter says, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Like you weren't expecting this. It caught you by surprise. Did you really believe that there are going to be bad times? There's going to be bad days. Yes. He would write to them in chapter one You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Yes, you are a chosen generation. Chapter two Your royal priesthood. You are the people of God. You will have days of heaven on earth. You are so privileged, but you're going to have bad days. You're going to have days of fiery trials. You will have days of prosperity and you will have days of adversity. You will have good times and you will have bad times. Don't think it strange when the bad times come as though something strange has happened. As if you didn't expect it. Brothers and sisters, this is not pessimism. This is reality. This is the God ordained, God ordained the God-ordained, God-ordained balance of life. He has, the text says, does it not? God also hath set the one over against the other. This God who rules over all, has made, He has appointed. For you and for me, for your home and for my home, for your church, whatever ministry it is, good days and bad days. We will do ourselves and those around us a whole lot of good and save ourselves and those around us a whole lot of unnecessary grief if we will just remember that. It's when we have forgotten that, when those rough, bad, awful days come, times of trouble, we forget that, and our response indicates that we have forgotten that. And we can respond to the bad days, the bad times, in a way that only makes them worse. And that affects those around us. And it's not a positive impact that it has. We become, to borrow a modern day expression, an influencer. But it's not for good. Why? Because we have lost sight of this fact. This tension that will always be throughout our entire journey to glory. There are going to be good days. But God has appointed Bad days. Hard times. Is that not the very argument that Job gave to his wife? Here's a man who saw it. He understood this. His wife, after looking at the loss of ten children, she's seeing her husband, he's living in constant pain. He can't sleep. I mean, his body is sores, crusted. Every movement it was pain. And she said, you just should just curse God and die. What did he say? Chapter 2, verse 10. Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. And that word foolish is not just meaning when you're being silly. You're being silly, dear. It's a word that speaks of wickedness. The pagan women, the ungodly. You're speaking, you're talking like them now. That's your response to this situation? You're talking someone who is, doesn't know God at all. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? What? Do you hear him? He's aghast at what his wife is suggesting. Oh, you're, you're okay with the good times. You're okay with the good days, but when it gets rough... You say you just should curse God and die. God God had blessed Job with a long, long, long day of prosperity. There's no denying that. Job was, I quote, perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. There's nothing, absolutely nothing that I can point to in that man's life that would give me Any reason to believe that Job had done something to fall out of favor with God? The scripture says, Job 1, verse 3, that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Job had a great family, Job had great wealth. Job had great godliness. God's light shone brightly upon this man's life. They were good times. I don't know how many years it went on, but they were good times. Everyone respected Job. When he spoke, everyone grew silent. But it changed. The day of adversity came for that man, and what a day of adversity it was. His livestock, that was the source of his wealth, was gone. The camels, which would have been the means to chase down the Sidonians and the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans to recover what he lost, they're gone too. All ten children, gone. Ten Then his health, gone. And Job is struggling to understand the reason for it all. His friends think they knew the reason why he was having a bad time. He's got hidden sin in his life, they thought. Job must be a hypocrite. Because nothing like this happens to anyone who professes to be a child of God unless they're really secretly leading a double life. They were convinced that Job was a big fat hypocrite. Eliphaz says to him, in essence, in his discourse, that whenever something like this happens, it's got to be because of sin. And then he says this, and this must have cut into the soul of Job, chapter 5, verse 4. He says this, his, he's now describing like in the third person, this, this guy who seems to be so holy, but then such tragedy happens. So that's who he's talking about, But he's really getting at Job. Listen to what he says. You know, he's lost 10 children. His children are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them. You see what he was doing? Your kids, Job, they died because of you. The house fell upon them. They were crushed to death. It's all because of you, Job. God visited the iniquity of you upon your children. But, how did Job respond when he heard about the loss of all of his wealth and the loss of his ten children? The scripture says, Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The bad time, the day of adversity came in like a flood of that man's life. Man who had done nothing to warrant such action on the part of God. I say that because God himself in chapter 2 verse 3, God told Satan, Thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. I have no cause to bring this calamity into his life. You're moving me to destroy him without cause. This man blessed God. Just as he had given and believed, he had the right to do that. He's the Lord. He has the right to give. He has the right to take away. He has the right to build up a church with people. He has the right to take the people away. You believe that? does that does that affect how you look at days and times of adversity? It should It should. in other words, the the Lord is the one who has appointed, he has fixed, it's it's in his divine calendar, for you and for me, that at such and such a place and such and such a time and in such and such a way, I'm going to bring adversity into their life, I'm going to do this, just like I had in such and such a time and a place and, and a means to bring days of blessing and prosperity. Good times and bad times, Job is saying, He's still the king. And He is worthy of my praise. I have always sought to stress this in my ministry, whether public or whether private. God does as He wills in heaven and in earth. I cannot tell you how much of a stabilizer that has been in my own life as days of adversity have. Come by God's appointment. God does as He wills in heaven and in earth. Here's what Solomon is saying in, in, in so many words, when he says that God is the one who has this plan, and he's appointed these times of prosperity and these times of adversity, set one against the other. First, God's plan is absolutely universal, this plan that he has to appoint these times, universal. There is no time, there's no place, there's no circumstance, no no life where God is not ruling absolutely. His plan deals with all the inhabitants of the earth, heaven and hell. He is Lord over everything. I know you confess that you believe that. We're all good Calvinists, right? We believe and love to declare that God is sovereign. So it's everything. His reign is universal. There's nothing that happens in your life, nothing that happens in mine, no matter how minute or how grandiose. It's his plan. God's plan is also absolutely sovereign. By that I mean what he does and doesn't do. When he does or doesn't do something. Where he does and doesn't do something. How he does or doesn't do something is entirely his prerogative. He's God. That, that, that truth means that the appointing of the good days and the bad days in our lives is according to a plan. God does nothing by a whim, nothing haphazard. He always deals in his entire universe according to an eternal purpose A divine plan which he has purposed in Jesus Christ, his son. Ephesians chapter 1. A third thing I gather about God's plan from what Solomon is saying in chapter 7. His appointing both good days and bad days is always for the absolute good of his people. Always. Always. Romans 8.28 is the bottom line truth in that. He's done it that everything will work together for his people's good. That means for their benefit. Everything. The good times and the bad times. The days when the work is prospering and the days when the work is not prospering part of the plan and that plan is to benefit the Lord's people always remember that always remember that second thought I gleaned from that verse it is the bad days that are usually the most instructive not the good days but the bad days the Holy Spirit says in our text that in the day of prosperity, rejoice. In, in, in that 59 revival, when the sunshine of God's face fell upon that land, the Lord's people, if you just read the accounts of it, were just so full of joy. What preaching went on? I mean, it was nonstop. The people wanted to assemble together day after day after day what prayer meetings were taking place what singing was done by the Lord's people it wasn't just lip and lung their hearts were readily engaged they were singing passionately for all they were worth things had changed tremendously in that land we can only read about it and imagine what must it have been like for the preacher to preach till midnight or one in the morning and he's hoarse and they have to bring another preacher in because the people will not go home we're living in a land where 12 o'clock rolls around and the people are looking at their watches preach for an hour come on I've got better places to be and better things to do than to hear someone drone on for an hour. They were rejoicing because so much, it was a day of prosperity. God did great things in what has been called the the golden year of Jubilee. And there is still Uh, I would call it a faint afterglow even to this day in certain parts of Northern Ireland and you can tell it when you go into some of the prayer meetings. It's at a different level. So this command to rejoice in the day of prosperity doesn't require great faith. There's probably no easier command to Obey in the Lord's word than to rejoice when everything is good, when everything is going great. There's nothing to worry you as far as your financial state is concerned. Nothing troubling there. You're not a millionaire, but you've got enough to make you feel like you're financially secure, and you can cover the bills comfortably. You'll be able to meet your financial obligations and there's even a little bit extra to splurge. You're relatively in good health. Now ah, You may have a few aches and pains because of age if you're getting at that point in life. But overall, you're in pretty good shape. Things are pretty good as far as Home life is concerned. The kids are either too young to cause you, well, they can cause trouble, all right, when they're young, but not the kind of trouble they can cause you when they get older. Or if they have grown older, they're walking with the Lord. You don't have any wayward children. Your marriage is strong and while neither of you would claim perfection, will be the day when either of you do claim perfection in marriage. You're able, to, you're able to work through your problems and go on with God. It's a lifelong process, of course. You never arrive. There's always working through problems. But you do. When it comes to your spiritual life, it's relatively calm. There aren't any real fiery trials that you're facing in your walk with the Lord. Yeah, you you do have the normal day-to-day trials that, that every Christian has to face, but you're enjoying the Lord, and you're enjoying the place of prayer, you're enjoying the Word of God, you're enjoying the fellowship with the Lord's people. It's just ticking over nicely for you. To take the words of Luke and Acts 9, as he described the early Christians, you're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Yes, you're, you're very happy to obey this command to rejoice in the day of prosperity. Of course I'm going to be joyful in the day of prosperity. Lord, give me more of them. And the happier I'll be. But it's a different matter when you come to the day of adversity. The word adversity is that common Hebrew word raw. Sometimes it's translated evil. It doesn't necessarily mean moral evil, but calamity, adversity, distress. And the Lord's command on that day is consider. Did you catch that? doesn't seem to be the right word that would parallel what he's just said. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. So you would think it would say, in the day of adversity, mourn. But that's not what he says. In the day of adversity, consider. Stop and think. Think. If you're in a day, a time of adversity, a bad day. Sometimes, you know, the Lord appoints us to walk through deep waters and through fires and periods when it seems like he's crushing our heart to pieces. So much so that we feel we can't take it. But it is in the flood or the furnace that we really learn some of life's most valuable lessons. Lessons that we would never, ever, ever learn during the good times. There's a school. There's a classroom that God has to bring his people into to teach them certain lessons that they can't learn when the sun is shining brightly. Look at the first three verses. Chapter 7, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death and the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. That is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. He will consider. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Well, 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 that's a lesson. It is in the day of adversity that, that we learn, that we, that we really learn that all important lesson of the cross. As God's child, you will never lose anything of real value in sorrow, in adversity. The sorrows of Calvary were part and parcel to the greatest gain the world has ever seen. The sorrows of the cross. In fact, the gain was only going to be obtained through the sorrows of the cross. And it's during the night seasons, during the heartaches, or during the scorching deserts of a spiritual wilderness, that God's people learned the truths about God and about others and about themselves. They would never learn otherwise. Mrs. Loman, I know, won't feel embarrassed when we were chatting a little bit after the morning service. It's something that only those who have lost their spouses understand. And you you don't hold it against anyone because they don't understand, but it's just a fact of life. You learn things about the Lord when you've lost your spouse that you would never learn otherwise. I've never known the Lord's love for me as I've known since Kim went to be with him. I've never known it. I've never known his care for me. I've never known such nearness to the Lord. I've never known his pity to come when I was at my lowest and not wanting to live, just wanting to go home, that he came very close and held me to his breast. I would have never known that apart from the sorrows that came with her death. The poet wrote, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but I was none the wiser for what she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow And never a word spake she, but all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. The greatest lesson we are to learn. Solomon said that God put the good day beside the bad day. He brings them both into our lives that we might Find nothing after him. This never-ending fluctuation of good days and bad days are designed to increase our dependence upon him. There's nothing after him. There's nothing else. It's all about him, the Lord says. I bring these, I set one against the other that you might learn how much you are dependent upon me and how much I care for you. I give you both. I appoint both. I set one against the other. There's nothing after him. You see, we have this. We have this tendency to forget God when everything goes well. That's all throughout Scripture. The Lord blessed them with things that made them happy, and they forgot God. That's what the psalmist says. They forgot God. Life was ticking over nicely. No troubles, no problems. It reminds me of the psalm. I don't remember the psalm, but because they have no changes, therefore they fear not God. No, no changes, no upsets. The Lord knows that will happen. So God brings these bad times, times of adversity, calamity, to remind us that not only is he in absolute control of everything, that he is actually directing all things That nothing is happening by an accident but to teach us that we cannot do without him. You can rattle that off as a confession of your faith but it's something else when it has gripped your soul and you're before God on your face and you're telling him with a broken heart I can't do without. I can't do this without you. Tell me. Is that not where you want to be? Let's be honest. Is that not where you want to be in your life? Before the Lord. Crying out from your heart. I can't do this without you. And you know what the Lord says? Good. That's why I sent the time of adversity. It's what I'm after. I just want you to see there's nothing after me. I am all and all. That is what we must consider. I mean, have you stopped to consider why is our little church going through this time would you call it a good time? It's a time of testing. It's a time of adversity. Why? What's the Lord doing? We learn during the bad days not to judge a book by its cover. Things are not what they always appear to be. The difference between appearance and reality is an important lesson to learn. You find that lesson in this chapter, the day of death is better than the day of birth. It wouldn't seem to be that way. We always celebrate birthdays, but not death days. But the day of death is better than the day of birth. Mourning is better than mirth. Sorrow is better than laughter. Rebuke from a wise man is better than praise from a fool. The end is better than the beginning. So so at first glance, the, the opposite of all those things seem to be true. But all too often, we judge God and what he does by first glance. Particularly on the bad days. We fail to stop and consider. And we fail to stop and look beyond sight to the reality that nothing but faith can see. I mean, you can't see what he's saying apart from faith. Unbelief is only going to think that, well, you know, it's better to be happy than to be sorrowful. And it's better to celebrate a birthday than a death day. I don't think so. You see, faith sees that prosperity without God is worthless. And that adversity with God is worth everything. It's worth everything. Every tear, every sorrow, every ache, every trial. With God, it's worth everything. Third and final thought the effects that a right response to God's dealings with us on the good days and bad days, the effect that will have. Three things and I'm finished. If we stop and consider, it will humble our pride. It's something that's always there. I don't know if I've ever told you, probably have, been enough time to quote my friend Spurgeon. He talks about dying to the sin of pride. And he says, Christians, well, I think his words were, we will not, sin will not die in us until we die. It's always going to be there. Pride. Pride. And the Lord knows it. Ah, but you see, when you stop and consider in a day of adversity, this is the Lord that's done this, and he's done this for my good, my help. I, I see nothing after him. I need the Lord. If I, I, I can't do it without him. My, how that humbles us. And we need to be humbled. He hath shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? That's divine requirement. If we stop and consider, it brings us down low where we need to be. We all know the problems that pride calls. Only by pride come with contention. Fighting. Arrogance. Hardness of heart. God says, I'm going to deal with it. I have appointed days of adversity to humble the hearts, to humble the pride of my people. It will also soothe our sorrows. Forgive me for personal testimony, but I have found nothing like this that just calmed my own heart at the loss of my wife. This was the hand of the God. It was like Job the Lord gave 40 good years. And he took her away forever as my wife. It's over. The sovereign king did that. And the best thing I can do is to bow before him and say, You are my Lord. It is your prerogative. It's your will, and that's all that matters. The affliction did not come by chance. It did not come by the devil. It did not come because doctors weren't able to deal with brain tumors. Why did she have to have a type 2 meningioma and not a type 1? which the vast majority survive. Why did it have to be near a blood vessel in her brain that they could not take it all out because of fear of nicking the blood vessel and her die on the table? Why? It was part of his plan. Ordained by God. But you see, you have to believe if you want the sorrow soothed, whatever the situation is, this God has always, as far as his people are concerned, in all the days of adversity, he has done the absolute best thing he could do, the wisest thing that could be done, and the most loving thing that could be done. The best thing he could do was to bring my wife's life to an end exactly how he did it. Would you charge him with folly and say it should have been some other way? You can't do that. It was the wisest thing that could be done. There was no mistake here. He didn't misread things. He has a plan far beyond what you and I would ever begin to see and what God is going to do on a much larger scale because of the things that he brings into our lives. And it was the greatest expression of his love that he brought that time of adversity into the life. That takes away the sorrow, you know, in a large degree. It helps you cope with the days that seem to be endless. Thirdly and finally, it stops our murmuring. It stops our murmuring. When we see God as the Sovereign One we'll find all our murmuring will cease. We're brought to his throne. We look upon his person. This is the king. This is the almighty God. How can I murmur? How can I complain against him? And so the hymn writer wrote for I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. You believe that? Yeah, you believe that during days of prosperity. But it's believing it in the day of adversity, the bad time, the trouble. It just stops the complaining. He's done what's right. And I'm content with that. Now, isn't that a great way to start the week? Isn't it now? What is going to be brought into your life this week? What news are you going to get? I don't know. I don't need to be afraid though and you don't need to be afraid. He's still doing all things well. One day set against another. God stamped the word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, we come at the end of thy day thanking thee for the truths of thy word. We want them to dwell in us richly. For thy word declares that if thy word abides in us, we shall bring forth much fruit. Prevent the devil from snatching away the seed of thy truth. May that find a lodging place in our souls. May the Spirit of God come along and water it, that we might grow thereby. Be a people in this world who show to the world our God is in the heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.